Oyez, oyez, oyez. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the Court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. We will hear argument this morning in Case 19-1392, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. General Stewart. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey haunt our country. That's Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stewart laying out his state's opening argument on Wednesday, December 1st, challenging the framework of Roe v. Wade. For 50 years, they've kept this court at the center of a political battle that it can never resolve. While the decorum in the court was solemn, outside the atmosphere was confrontational, passionate, and at times, prayerful. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou, woman, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother. This week, we explore how we have arrived at this moment and how faith is being invoked on all sides of the debate. I went down to the Supreme Court on Wednesday, December 1st, before the oral arguments began. And everywhere I turned, I heard people of faith invoking their beliefs. I stand in solidarity with my sisters in Mississippi and Texas, and I demand for the Supreme Court to operate in the same spirit as is instructed through the Bible in Deuteronomy 16:19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. We are the righteous. It's what's good and evil. Here's the deal. They always chant, my body, my choice. But I b- firmly believe that that is another body that you have to protect. That That is a form of you, but that is a different body. If they don't want them, there are many, many families that can't have kids that would love to be able to adopt. Adopt them. Give them away. Whether, whatever their belief system is, they don't have to keep the baby. But I feel that, that they have to be honorable under the Bible in, in having that baby. But the issue of abortion access and the case before the court is not a First Amendment case about codifying the religious views on when human life begins. Despite the beliefs of the opponents and supporters of Roe, what is being debated in the case is something very different. How did we get here? Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. David Garrow is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of a half-dozen works of nonfiction, including Liberty and Sexuality, The Right to Privacy, and The Making of Roe v. Wade. He says the path to the current abortion debate started with a case called Griswold v. Connecticut. In the 1960s, the Roman Catholic Church had a lot of influence in states like Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New York. And at the time, 
Roman Catholic leadership exercised its significant political power to prevent the repeal of an 80-year-old law on the Connecticut books that prohibited any person from using any drug, medicinal article, or instrument for the purpose of preventing conception. And it made it illegal for medical professionals to dispense contraception. In other words, in Connecticut in the 1960s, women could not buy birth control or contraceptive devices like diaphragms. That was something Planned Parenthood of Connecticut was trying to change. For more than 30 years, the organization tried to repeal the law. That's according to scholar David Bollier, who wrote Crusaders and Criminals, Victims and Visionaries, Historic Encounters between Connecticut citizens and the United States Supreme Court. Those efforts were successful in the Connecticut House because they were supported by liberal clergy. However, they were blocked in the Connecticut Senate because of the active lobbying of Roman Catholic leadership. Advocates unable to move the legislature turned their attention instead to the courts to provoke a legal battle. Estelle Greenwald, executive director of Planned Parenthood of Connecticut, opened the New Haven Birth Control Clinic to distribute family planning education and to dispense birth control to low-income women who could not afford private care. Dr. Lee Buxton was a prominent physician at Yale University. He agreed to serve as the clinic's medical director. Opening the clinic was an intentional, direct challenge to state lawmakers and prosecutors. No one was being arrested for using contraception privately. Getting arrested for distributing birth control would give Griswold and Buxton legal standing to appeal and make their case in the courts. According to Garrow, Efforts to repeal the law were actually supported by the public. Griswold was almost universally popular, but it was viewed as cleaning up antiquarian dirty laundry. But to be clear, that support did not translate into support for abortion or abortion access. As of 1965, when Griswold was decided, the notion that abortion could be a right was almost unheard of. In the Griswold decision, the Supreme Court ruled that the Connecticut law violated the privacy and liberty of a marital couple. So how did we get from legalizing birth control and privacy to abortion? In the wake of Griswold, a third-year law student wrote a long paper arguing that Griswold's analysis could easily be extended from contraception to abortion. And that paper was incredibly influential. Now, abortion was publicly, officially illegal everywhere in the United States in the mid-1960s. Now, it was widely available to privileged women who had private connections to MDs who were doing abortions on the down low. But for women who were working class, In poverty, they didn't have the funds or the connections to make use of these underground networks. In addition to privacy and contraception, Griswold highlights a class disparity, which often means a racial disparity between women with means and those without. That is still laid bare in today's abortion challenge. The most impacted? Families with limited resources. When Estelle Griswold won her case before the Supreme Court in a 7-2 decision, 
the question of abortion and the debate moved to the forefront of the national political conversation. The terms that were used back at that time were reform and repeal. Now, reform meant liberalizing state anti-abortion laws so that the woman had to get the approval of some committee of doctors at one or another hospital. But perhaps not at all surprisingly, lead to only a a trickle of women uh, successfully navigating this one-by-one medical approval process. Now, the fact that those early reform statutes have an underwhelming impact very quickly accelerates the reformers' evolution towards repeal, i.e. legalization of abortion uh, across the board without any medical permission process uh, being required. And in the spring of 1970, the New York State Legislature passed a repeal bill. Now, that is the landmark moment in legal change about abortion in America. The New York legalization is arguably more important than Roe v. Wade, which was decided two and a half years later. Now, July 1, 1970 is when that New York statute took effect. And so any woman in America who had the means and the money to get herself physically to New York State, could get a legal abortion. The present situation in Texas is exactly what existed all across America in 1970 and and earlier. A distinction between women who can travel, women in Texas who can afford an airplane flight, and women who can't. In the wake of Griswold, a new group of faith-based advocates emerged. But they were very different from the Roman Catholics who lobbied successfully to stop the legislature from repealing the 80-year-old ban on contraception. Liberal clergymen played a major role in advancing underground access through a network called the Clergy Consultation Service. The best-known figure in the Clergy Consultation Service movement uh, was a Texas-born pastor, uh, Reverend Howard Moody, who wore a cowboy hat and pastored Judson Memorial Church in Greenwich Village. Reverend Moody and hundreds of of other clergy across the country, probably about half Protestant, half Jewish, uh, not at all Roman Catholic, they developed uh, a network of contacts with reliable doctors who did illegal abortions. These pastors put themselves forward publicly as an an access window to tell women where and and who to go to. And it was very successful. And was it just in New York or was it all around the country? It was pretty much nationwide. And it was really the New York legalization that really mobilized the Catholic Church and the Catholic hierarchy to put much more of an investment into opposing abortion and abortion liberalization than the Roman Catholic Church had been doing uh, throughout the political battles of the late 1960s. Even in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade nationally, religious opposition to abortion is almost entirely Roman Catholic. And it's only really uh, during the Reagan years in the 1980s that opposition to abortion expands and becomes more ecumenical, particularly 
in evangelical Protestant circles. To this point, no one focused on embryonic development or the fetus. What one sees is more an argument about sexual freedom and women's sexual freedom. The opposition emphasis is that easy access to abortion, like easy access to contraception, will lead to an epidemic of sexual misbehavior. In Roe itself, the justices gave very little thought or consideration to whether the decision should protect women's access all the way to viability at about 23, 24 weeks, or should the decision simply cover the first trimester? And following some lower court analyses, the justices decide, almost off the cuff, to go to viability, not the first trimester. And that's the result, the sort of unconsidered result, that there really wasn't much of a discussion at all in 1972 of Is there a meaningful difference between a a 10-week abortion and a 20-week abortion? Religious groups opposed to abortion were quick to see an opening here. They put the fetus in the spotlight, reframing their arguments away from religious objections to more science-based objections about the viability of the fetus. And that led to a refocusing of their legal challenges. In subsequent abortion cases, like Casey versus Planned Parenthood in 1992, and now Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization. A very dedicated set of anti-abortion litigators has really pushed the religious uh, opposition to abortion or religiously grounded opposition uh, to abortion to the, the public sidelines, in my view. Abortion has become almost entirely a political, legal, constitutional argument now. Both religion and medicine have largely disappeared from the debate. We have the fetal heartbeat element, yes, still there, but particularly on the part of Mississippi's argument, it is entirely a matter of constitutional law. And on constitutional arguments in recent years, the conservatives have been winning because they have upped their game hugely, whereas liberal progressive constitutional thought and argument has become moribund. Oh my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, lead all souls into heaven, especially those most need of thy mercy. Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception. For Elizabeth Cavell, connecting the current abortion challenges to the religious intent behind the law is paramount. She's the Associate Legal Counsel for the Freedom from Religion Foundation, an author of its amici brief submitted to the court in support of Mississippi's sole abortion clinic. In the early days, everyone acknowledged that there were religious bases underlying a lot of these restrictions. And so courts have chosen not to grapple with that. But we bring it up again in our brief to really point to the fact that Not a lot has changed in terms of the intent of legislators who pass these laws. We still have legislators who openly kind of profess that religious ideas, theology, basically religious ideas about ensoulment and when life begins and those really personal um, and spiritual and theological questions are the things that are motivating legislators to 
introduce and vote for these laws. Governors that sign these bills make statements that are really explicit about um, the religious purposes behind the bill and the religious inspiration for these kind of otherwise arbitrary decisions. Cavell's Freedom from Religion Foundation amici brief and those of others emphasize a concurring opinion by former Justice John Paul Stevens in 1989's Webster v. Reproductive Health Services. In that case, which upheld abortion access by a 5-4 to four margin, Justice Stevens points to the Constitution's Establishment Clause prohibiting Congress from establishing a religion. Stevens reasons the Establishment Clause requires a neutral, secular, rather than religious ideological foundations to U.S. laws. And because the precise moment when an unborn embryo or fetus becomes a human life is one that many debate, something often referred to as ensoulment, Stevens argues this is largely a theological and religious question with many interpretations. Therefore, the government should not determine or define it. Justice Stevens in the Webster case was pointing out the court majority is not talking about this, but I just want to say I find no secular basis for this law. And if you fast forward to today, the same problem exists in the Mississippi legislation. So the law itself has definitions in it that tell the person reading the law what all the words mean. And the legislative findings in the law refer to an embryo before 15 weeks or fetus as an unborn human being. That's their language. So when they're saying an unborn human being has a heartbeat at such and such weeks or can move at eight weeks, they're using unborn human being, their own definition of that, to define an embryo or a fetus long before viability. So in other words, the language that they're using in the act adopts a religious conception of when life begins. They define human being as an individual member of the species Homo sapiens from and after the point of conception. That is not a secular definition. Many people in our society adhere to that, but it's not, (laughs) that doesn't make it secular. So the adoption of that definition by the Mississippi legislature is a religious value judgment and it undergirds the whole law. And That's what Justice Stevens was noting in Webster, which is the court should pick up on, not ignore the absence of secular purposes that undergird all these legislative definitions that life begins at conception or that a human being comes into being at conception. People might agree with that and make their personal decisions based on that, which is fine and grand and how it's supposed to be. But The Mississippi legislature should not be able to adopt that value judgment. It's religious. And then make everyone in the state of Mississippi abide by it. Coming up, we hear why legal advocates are concerned that the Supreme Court is ignoring the establishment issues implicit in the argument around defining when a human life begins. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us.
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired. We're taking a closer look at how abortion rights evolved with historian David Garrow. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of a half-dozen works of nonfiction, including Liberty and Sexuality, The Right to Privacy, and The Making of Roe v. Wade. Before the break, Garrow described how abortion rights evolved in the United States, taking us back to the case Griswold v. Connecticut. He described how the battle for access to contraception for married couples ultimately paved the way for a legal movement that sought to liberalize abortion laws. Before the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade, women's maternal health deaths attributed to botched and unsafe abortions, and that inspired clergy around the country to organize an underground network of support to connect women to medically trained doctors willing to perform illegal abortions. Let's get back to the conversation. When Roe and Doe v. Bolton were argued in the Supreme Court in 1971 and 1972, the quality of Texas's representation in those cases was laughably poor. Hmm. Uh, same thing when Griswold uh, was argued in the Supreme Court in 1965. Connecticut's representation was quite poor. Nowadays, however, and Texas has been a leader in this, Mississippi is now a leader in this, the quality of the legal submissions and arguments is absolutely first rate. Mississippi's Solicitor General, Mr. Stewart, submitted arguably the best Supreme Court brief I've ever read in my life in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women Health Organization case. Now, that's one aspect of the growth of a conservative legal movement that the Federalist Society played a major role in, and that also the network of former clerks uh, to Justice Clarence Thomas played a major role in. 
Now, I think many people have heard of the Federalist Society and may realize that it is a conservative, intellectual, legal powerhouse. Uh, These are really first-rate folks. And during the George W. Bush presidency, during the Trump presidency, dozens and dozens and dozens of first-rate Federalist Society members became federal judges. And Justice Thomas in particular has built this powerhouse network of former clerks uh, who are now on the federal courts of appeal and district courts. And these judges will be there 30 years from now. At least six of the nine justices currently serving on the Supreme Court have ties to the Federalist Society, all except Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Stephen Breyer. In the arithmetic of the Supreme Court, upholding Roe v. Wade may not add up. I think it's crystal clear that the Texas SB 8 statute will be struck down. In the oral arguments in the two Texas cases a month ago, Justices Kavanaugh, Barrett, and even Justice Clarence Thomas made it clear that they believe the Texas law is constitutionally unacceptable in its legal procedural particulars. It's not about pregnancy or abortion per se. It's about the very odd, unique, unacceptable enforcement method. Now, the Mississippi case is more threatening and more difficult, and it will come down to some combination of Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Barrett. Justice Barrett made it very clear in the Texas oral arguments, at least to me, that she is a first-rate intellect, an absolutely first-rate intellect. She asked the Abortion Providers Council in the Texas case a question about an 1850 precedent, and she knew it, and he did not know what she was asking. So she knows her stuff. Both Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch clerked for retired Justice Anthony Kennedy. One of Justice Kennedy's two major constitutional milestones was Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the landmark 1992 ruling that upheld Roe v. Wade, and Casey remains the law of abortion today. So what Mississippi is asking Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh to do is to overturn or flush the constitutional legacy of their justice. Now, former clerks are notoriously, notoriously loyal to their justices. Justice Gorsuch is willing to overturn apple carts. So to me, Justice Gorsuch voting to overturn Casey and Roe is far more likely than Justice Kavanaugh doing so. Kavanaugh is always looking for an intermediate middle ground. But in the Mississippi litigation, is 15 weeks really an intermediate ground between viability and overturning Casey and Roe? No one who really analytically understands abortion litigation thinks that the justices can accept a 15-week ceiling without automatically triggering further state statutes that would move the scale from 15 to 12 to 10 to 6, etc. We also have, in the last few years, as we see in Texas, 
the rise of these fetal heartbeat statutes, Mm -hmm. with the general consensus being that a fetal heartbeat begins at about six weeks time in pregnancy. Now, many states are adopting these heartbeat statutes, and they're being litigated in the federal courts of appeal from state after state. So the safest bet is that a court majority either has to reaffirm Casey and Roe, or it has to overturn everything and move us to a world where abortion legality is entirely a state-by-state-by-state world. To overturn Casey and Roe would take us back to 1970, to a world where women who can travel interstate will experience abortion freedom. Women whose lives don't allow them to travel interstate will lose reproductive freedom. Cavell is also not optimistic that Roe v. Wade will survive Mississippi's challenge. I think the outcome is more or less already known um, by many of the justices. So sadly, I expect a outcome that accepts the Mississippi law as constitutionally permissible and therefore does away with the viability rule that we've all kind of come to rely on as the guiding principle in when abortions can be banned by states. And so the practical result is going to be fewer clinics that are open in some of these places that already have limited access. Liz Cavell is the Associate Legal Counsel for the Freedom From Religion Foundation based in Madison, Wisconsin. The nonprofit organization has 35,000 members and describes itself as a church-state watchdog advocating for free thought. David Garrow is a historian and the author of several books, including Liberty and Sexuality, The Right to Privacy, and The Making of Roe v. Wade, a comprehensive history of the American reproductive rights struggle. One undeniable force in the conversation about the evolution of abortion rights in America is the role and influence of the Roman Catholic Church, its impact on shaping the public debate and legal strategies to reverse the historic 1973 Supreme Court ruling is, well, undisputed. Yet the leadership of the church on this issue stands in stark contrast to the public opinion polling of American Catholics. In 2019, the Pew Research Center found that two-thirds of American Catholics say Roe v. Wade should not be overturned, raising the question, who speaks for pro-choice Catholics? After the break, my conversation with Jamie Manson, president of Catholics for Choice. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back. I'm Ambreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired. This week, we're tracing back to the roots of Roe v. Wade, 
Earlier in the episode, historian David Garrow described how the influence of the Roman Catholic leadership and hierarchy in Connecticut, New York, and Massachusetts played a role in the legal battles that emerged. Garrow maintains that had the Roman Catholic leadership not blocked the Connecticut State House in the 1960s from repealing an archaic and unpopular law that prohibited the sale and distribution of birth control, the landmark case Griswold v. Connecticut would never have happened. And without Griswold, there would not have been Roe. It's a striking reminder that the Supreme Court rulings can have some unforeseeable outcomes. Regardless of your point of view, the power and influence of faith-based lobbying organizations in Washington, D.C. and in state capitals around the country is significant. And that includes the Roman Catholic lobby. Back in 1973, a small group of pro-choice Catholics organized and founded a nonprofit with the explicit intent of confronting the power of the Vatican and its U.S. leadership body, the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops, the USCCB. They began as Catholics for a free choice. A few years ago, they changed their name to Catholics for Choice. The organization's voice and leadership is unique in a faith tradition that has an established hierarchy and leader, the Pope. The nonprofit, based in the United States, created a platform and an organizing vehicle for activists and Catholic leaders to speak out and, in many instances, oppose the guidance of the bishops. Not surprising, the USCCB over the years has issued a number of public resolutions and statements denouncing Catholics for choice, decrying the group as standing in opposition to Catholic teaching. Last year, the board of directors hired a new leader, Jamie Manson. This week, I spoke to her by phone from the offices of the organization in downtown Washington, D.C. Jamie Manson, welcome to the program. Excited to have you. I believe you've been in your position as president of Catholics for Choice for almost a year now. Yeah, just completed my first year. When it comes to issues of gender, particularly homosexuality and same-sex marriage and abortion, you know, some would use the word condemned by the Catholic Church, discouraged. Absolutely. Condemned. Condemned. (laughs) So you're this out-Catholic woman, and Hmm. you wanted to exercise and provide this leadership. What was the thinking by the board? Was there a strategic decision here? Help me situate that. Well, I, you know, obviously I can't speak for the board, um, but I think it's fair in my experience being an out queer person in the Catholic Church now for 14 years. There's been a lot more inroads made for on LGBTQ issues in the church than there have been on abortion or even women's ordination. It shows we've made progress on that issue. Clearly, I'm very bold. I'm courageous. People were loving what I was saying about young adults and the future of the church, but I was getting uninvited once people realized, oh, she's she's an out lesbian and she's she's not celibate. Um, she's you know in, in a relationship. So I think that was part of it. And then I had this, you know, it, very, you know, intensive training in Catholic sexual ethics uh, and theology. I had Sister Margaret Farley, Sister of Mercy, was was my teacher at Yale. And she is, you know, a groundbreaking thinker on these issues related to Catholic theology, ethics and sexuality and abortion. So I think there were a number of elements that made me the ideal candidate. And also, I still really love the faith. 
And I think you can't find that very often either. I think I, I had the elements that, that they were looking for. What is your vision for this year? Yeah, you know, most of my strategy comes from what I learned from Catholic Women Religious, and that is listen to the people on the ground, ask them what you need, ask them how best you can be of service. So that really is the backbone of our strategy for 2022. And what we're hearing is that we need to start having courageous conversations about abortion among Catholics, particularly Catholics who are progressive but are afraid of the issue of abortion and its moral complexities, Catholics who need more education around abortion. So we have a pretty strong education strategy this year. We bring people together and ask them to clarify their own values around abortion. So that that's really the backbone of our strategy strategy is is training, education, and clarifying our values and doing that deep, deep listening and, and conversation and dialogue that we think is missing and that we think will move the needle on this issue. There's just so much taboo and so much stigma around abortion in the minds of Catholics, and we need to destigmatize and educate. Who do you see as your target audience? You know, when I think of who my target audience is, I think of my friend, Dusty, who's a gay man, Catholic, has very Catholic parents. They live in Ohio, where there's some very stringent anti-abortion laws coming to the fore right now. And they're very sensible, and they love their son, and they support him and accept him, but they still voted for President Trump the first and the second time because he was the anti-choice candidate. And they just can never, ever imagine voting for a pro-choice candidate. Their faith doesn't allow it. So that's kind of my ideal. In the same way, they were able to change their values and their understanding on the LGBTQ issues, that through the same storytelling and education um, and reflection on Catholic social justice values can start to transform their minds and hearts around abortion, too. You know, what's so interesting about the example you just gave in which you're describing your friend Dusty is that his parents, it sounds like, were able to embrace him despite the teachings of the church. Right, right. Your mandate, your mission of educating and specifically destigmatizing the issue of choice with the American Catholic community, how do you see yourself tackling that? One in four people who get an abortion in the United States identifies Catholic. So that means the woman that's next to you in church or the woman that's handing out the Eucharist or is reading the uh, the scripture very well may have had an abortion. Women hold up the, you know, the fabric of the church. They really do. They do all the work. Like 85% of church workers are women. Let's think about how many of them have probably had abortions. And then the rhetoric you even hear from Pope Francis, who just a few months ago called a called abortion homicide. We need that church of encounter and that listening church that he keeps talking about, but he can't seem to apply uh, to women and pregnant people who have had abortions. So to me, it's storytelling, it's compassion, it's, it's, it's education, it's, it's all of those things. But I do think the heart of it is putting the human face on the abortion issue. How are you going to do this? I'm confident we create those safe spaces. We can do that. We've already done that with our Faithful Providers program, where we have providers of abortion care, everyone from the nurse, the doctor, you know, the, the security escort, who talk about why they support abortion access because of their faith, not in spite of it. One year in, what are some of the reflections you have about where the battle sits today? Well, it sits in a very precarious place. I think it's a very real possibility that Roe versus Wade could be struck down. Things have never been this dire. And what I would like 
people to understand is that abortion is used as an issue to activate the right wing. Uh, and I have been questioning, particularly the last year, how much this really is about defending life or respecting life or promoting life. And it's really about controlling the freedom, particularly of women, and trying to push a right-wing agenda that I think ultimately seeks to undermine democracy. You know, as I'm listening to you describe that, what I'm not hearing you talk about actually is religious theological decisions or decision-making. Mm -hmm. um, not hearing you talk about preeminent um, scriptural calling. You see politics more than religion in play. Can you explain? Well, religious actors are clearly the primary generators of this movement, and Catholic ideology uh, has been used now for political purposes. These whole ideas about when does life begin and theories of life, we're all really fighting uh, Catholic theology that's been adapted for political purposes. So uh, I certainly don't want to say religion isn't part of this. It's all being generated by that political machine uh, that is, you know, right-wing Christianity. So I really want people to understand that's what we're fighting. But more than that, I want people to understand that the majority of Catholics support abortion rights and 68% do not want to see Roe versus Wade struck down. And so the right wing has been very adept at claiming the moral high ground here. But the reality is people in good conscience and in good faith do support abortion access. Can you talk a little bit more about that? When was that polling done? So the numbers we use are from Pew, the Pew study, and they have uh, an entire study on Catholics and abortion and people of faith and abortion. I think the most updated numbers were from 2020. What I'm hearing you say is that using this issue, activating it as a wedge issue becomes politically advantageous for one group. What I'm right. curious about is the leadership in the United States, the American Catholic leadership. Where are they relative to the concerted effort that you're describing here as having a very kind of focused political agenda? They are very focused on abortion. They have said in no uncertain terms that it is the preeminent issue uh, for um, U.S. Catholics. Uh, and in that way, I think it, this is part of the chasm that we're seeing between the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops and the ordinary lay Catholic in the United States, who has a much more sensible and I think theologically nuanced approach to this, that this, even abortion, is not a black or white issue, and that we have to take our social justice values and uh, the way in which we observe the experience of human beings and we look at the face of human suffering and really come to a much more sophisticated understanding on these morally complex issues like abortion. When you talk about the ordinary Catholic, who is that? So I think it's important to say that Catholicism is the second largest denomination in the United States. And if it were a denomination, former Catholics would be the third largest denomination in the United States. But when I say ordinary Catholic, I'm really reflecting on the phenomenon that is Catholicism, which is that it's more than a set of religious beliefs. It really is a culture. It really is an identity. Uh, it's a way of seeing the world through a very sacramental lens and with a real sense of, of social justice and service uh, to the vulnerable and the marginalized. So that's the Catholic I'm talking about. I think a quarter of Catholics now go to daily mass. But that doesn't mean that people aren't identifying as Catholic. And I do think that if the U.S. bishops and uh, pastors of parishes were not perseverating on issues like abortion and same-sex marriage, more people would be going to mass. More people would be participating in the rituals because people are very hungry for that aspect of the church and they're being deprived. What I'm hearing you say is that 
the measure of being Catholic can't be discerned based on one practice, whether it's attending mass or participating in taking kind of rites and rituals, that the larger kind of body of American Catholics, all the different folks who identify as Catholic, uh, are not the same. And that diversity probably was more apparent during the election cycle of President Joe Biden, uh, America's second Catholic president, in which we saw the Catholic vote pretty evenly divided um, at the polls. And what exit polling showed was that this issue, abortion, played a very instrumental part in that. How do you see the discourse shifting with a Catholic president? I think it's it's really shifting uh, because this is the first unequivocally pro-choice Catholic president. And we also have a pro-choice Catholic Speaker of the House and nearly 100 members of Congress are pro-choice Catholics. So the bishops, obviously, uh, this stoked their ire. And the day the, the Joe Biden's uh, election was called, they had a letter ready for him telling him that he was creating confusion in the church. And it's that kind of condescending language, I think, from the bishops that really does turn off Catholics who otherwise would like to participate. Because again, we have bishops who don't want to listen to the voices of people. The first thing the bishop should be doing is speaking to women who have had abortions and listening to their stories and listening to the suffering and the human toll when people are barred from this kind of care. So it's a really pivotal moment, particularly for Catholics for choice, because we're very aware that there are Catholics who are otherwise pretty progressive, who just have so much taboo around abortion. And those are the people we really want to talk to and educate and engage into deep listening with, because I just think there's an incredible amount of misinformation, uh, an incredible uh, overbearing amount of stigma. For example, this whole idea that life begins at conception well, the scientific reality is that 60 to 80 percent of fertilized eggs are washed out of the body. So what does that mean? And what does that say about God who orders this, this sort of natural process? I don't think a lot of Catholics understand that. I don't think they know the difference between conception and implantation. So we just we want to do that basic education about human reproduction. We also really want to call attention to what we call the invention of abortion, which happened in the 1970s, where you had some very radical right wing white men who were, you know, feeling powerless and wanting to, you know, get their political power back and landed on the issue of abortion as the activating issue. And that has profound roots in white supremacy and now in uh, Christian nationalism. And so I think if we point out particularly the racist roots of using the abortion issue in this way, I think it would really open people's eyes. And that's the work we really want to do. Who are the individuals that you're referring to? Are the particular architects of this movement that you have in mind? Yeah, absolutely. In the 1970s, Paul Weyrich is really considered the architect, Phyllis Schlafly, characters like that. And of course, this movement was created out of the minds of a number of right-wing bishops. And I think what was motivating bishops was the fear about women's equality, which has always terrified them. It still terrifies them. Remember, this is a church that refuses to have women have any authority or decision-making power or, or voice. And so the idea of giving women some kind of freedom, once a woman has freedom to control her fertility, it opens her up to all kinds of power and freedoms, uh, economic, vocationally, and that terrifies the bishops. There is this argument that I often hear of this like fear of women being in power, yet Phyllis Schafley, um, Amy Coney Barrett, and there's so many others who are, in fact, very strong, vocal 
women who identify deeply with their faith who are using their power to introduce their point of view through various mechanisms. Is it fair to say that there aren't Catholic women who are actually exercising a significant amount of power? At least from where I sit, there are quite a few women who take a different position than Catholics for choice. And they are, just as you are, deeply rooted in their beliefs and in their worldview. There absolutely are. And what makes me sad is ultimately they're working against their own self-interest. And that is very, very painful for me to see. So Phyllis Schlafly, uh, you know, was, was a tool of the patriarchy. You know, she was a soldier in the army of the patriarchy. And to the extent to which she was conscious of that remains, I think, unclear. Amy Coney Barrett was part of a very fringe group of Catholics that has a very strict gender binary and hierarchy, which reasserts this fundamental idea that the Catholic Church wants to, I think, impose on the United States, which is that men are meant to take authority and be leaders and women are meant to be servants. And so, um, you know, these, yes, is Amy, these women are, they're brilliant in their own way. They exert power, but again, it's to perpetuate the patriarchy and ultimately undermine themselves and all women. I want to shift for a moment to the Mississippi case. I understand that Catholics for Choice filed an amici brief along with 57 other faith-based organizations, including the National Council of Jewish Women, Muslim Advocates, an array of faith-based organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about why it's important from your organization's perspective to have that voice in the court? Absolutely. Uh, Again, this goes back to our desire to make it clear to the courts and to the American public that people of faith do support abortion rights and to reclaim that moral high ground on the issue. We think the central tenets of our faith compel us to advocate for communities that have been historically marginalized and discriminated against and to make sure they have access to the care they need, the health care they need, and the same freedom to make decisions concerning their reproductive health. So all of these faith-based organizations were really motivated by concern for the marginalized and the vulnerable, and also concern for each other, because the fact is, there's a movement to impose one theory of life uh, on everyone else. And there are plenty of traditions that don't ascribe to that. Like Judaism, they do not, you know, believe a fetus is a life. And so it actually violates their religious freedom to impose these kinds of laws. That differing points of view, the theological differences that exist across different traditions. How important is it, do you think, for people of faith to be able to kind of look at this issue and these laws through that lens? I think that progressive people of faith realize they have to take the narrative back, take it out of the hands of the Christian right wing because it's nationalist and it's white supremacist and it is a danger to democracy. Jamie Manson is the president of Catholics for Choice. She's a graduate of Yale Divinity School, where she earned her master's in divinity studies with her mentor, Sister Margaret Farley. That's all for this week's show. This week's producers are Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, a member of the Sisters of Loretto. This program is produced by Interfaith Voices, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating the public and fostering understanding. We rely on your generous donations and support to continue our work. And in this season of giving, I invite you to learn more ways that you can do that at interfaithradio.org. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. 
Wherever you are, I hope you are well. I hope you are safe. And I'll see you next week.